The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, February 8th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have a hero, and he has feet of clay, but also a semi-erect manhood penetrating the zipper of said garment. I am, of course, talking about Jeff Bezos, head of Amazon and therefore an expert in the package delivery game. Now, before I make seven to 14 stupid jokes, let me say this about Jeff Bezos. Good on him. Brave to stand up. You know, we all make mistakes, even really, really big ones. And it must have been very, very harrowing, almost constricting to be squeezed like that by the shakedown artists at the National Enquirer. But I knew, I knew he'd find a way out. How did I know? Well, I listened to Jeff Bezos quotes on Alexa. Here's a Jeff Bezos quote. I think frugality drives innovation, just like other constraints do. One of the only ways to get out of the tight box is to invent your way out. Uh Uh-huh. You see, the Inquirer had these salacious pics, which they describe in language typical of Tattletale Magazine circa 1953. Miss Sanchez wearing a plunging red neckline dress, revealing her cleavage and a glimpse of her nether region. Miss Sanchez wearing a two-piece red bikini with gold detailed dress, revealing her cleavage. Oh, it turns out that plunging necklines and bikinis reveal cleavage. Or this part, a full-length, scantily clad body shot with short trunks. Is there any other clad besides scantily? Is there anything that's ever described as scantily other than clad? Why am I asking these questions? Here is a Jeff Bezos quote. The common question that gets asked in business is why? That's a good question. But an equally valid question is why not? Well, normally, Jeff, your daughter Alexa is accurate, but there I think she got it wrong. Wasn't it JFK who said that? Anyway, in the battle between you and AMI, the Inquirer company, they were trying to extort and you just did not want to pay. And I knew that you would want to undercut them. There are two kinds of companies, those that work to try to charge more and those that work to charge less. We will be the second. So you paid nothing. And now they will pay. They're paying already. And it's all because you went public on the website Medium. Ah, the power of the internet. I very much believe the internet is indeed all it is cracked up to be. Although I guess it could be argued that the vulnerabilities of your photos reveal the limitation of the internet. I think you should start the rumor that you used Microsoft cloud services, not Amazon. Just throwing that one out there. And maybe... To some extent, just knowing that you have these sexy selfies out there in the world, maybe that will help you a little bit navigate things as a single dude. If you do build a great experience, customers tell each other about that. Word of mouth is very powerful. On the show today, I spiel about the increasingly fraught situation in Virginia. But first, the Green New Deal aims for 100% renewable energy by 2030. Seems aggressive. Axios's Amy Harder is here to agree with me. Yes, it does. In other words, this is a great booking. Enjoy the interview.
The Green New Deal is a big deal insofar as it got a lot of attention. Were to pass, it would be one of these, it is the sense of this house that, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But I wanted to ask where we actually stand on some of the goals, notably the goals of 100% renewable energy. Amy Harder covers the energy and climate change for Axios. Perhaps you know her from her weekly column called Harder Line. Hello, Amy. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me on. So when we say 100% renewable energy, we mean no emissions, no particulates in the atmosphere, wind, solar, and water? Well, it really depends on who you ask what that means. But at face value, what 100% renewable energy means to me, which is somebody who, of course, studies this issue, it means that the entire economy needs to be renewable energy, which could include wind and solar, but also hydropower. In the context of this conversation with the Green New Deal, what I think most people mean is 100% renewable electricity, mm-hmm. which is not to be confused with our transportation sector or the emissions from manufacturing plants. And so that makes it a relatively easier lift, but it's still a very, very heavy lift. Now, does the Green New Deal, I know it doesn't even get into many specifics, but does it say electricity or does it say 100% renewable energy is the goal? Well, earlier iterations did specify 100% renewable electricity. The resolution itself is, it tries to be as general as possible. So Of course, it can get as much support as possible, and lawmakers can twist it to whatever way that they would like. So it says, what the resolution says is uh, net zero carbon emissions in the economy. Uh, And it it implies that that should be done within 10 years, but I think it's just to be done within a 10-year plan. Yeah. So that would mean literally no catalytic converters. I mean, cars as we know them wouldn't exist. Right. I mean, the the transportation sector is much more difficult to to make clean than the electricity sector. And we're not even that far on the electricity sector. About 17% of our electricity mix is renewable energy. Half of that, a little bit more than half of that is from hydroelectricity. All of those big dams out west that environmentalists hate. And so wind and solar themselves are about you know, 9% or so. Most of that is wind. So just wind and solar primarily making up, you know, the the other 85 to 80% of the electricity would be a humongous lift. Yeah. Now you probably uh, talk to scientists and groups of scientists, perhaps groups of concerned scientists all the time who will tell you, well, I think we could get to 100 by 2050, or I think we get to 80 percent by 2050, or maybe even 80 percent by 2030. Have you ever heard any credible person saying we can get to 100 percent even of electricity by 2030? I have not. I think the main data out there for those people pushing 100% renewable electricity are closer to 2050. Right. And that is what the main consensus, beyond consensus, you just said that you've never even talked to and you talk to experts all the time, someone saying it can be done by 2030. But this resolution doesn't spell it out. I mean, there's it's, it's a resolution. It's a hope and dream. But it does say we hope to get to 100 by 2030. Well, technically, the resolution says... It should be zero carbon. And then the section after that, it says this should be done within a 10-year plan. So that's being interpreted differently. But 
most of the scientists that I talk to and some of the economic experts and energy experts out there say that there really shouldn't be any sort of 100% renewable goal, even going out to 2050, for a couple of reasons. One, because we have a lot of uh, carbon-free electricity right now on our grid that is not renewable, and that's nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a wave of nuclear plants around the country that are shutting down prematurely before their government licenses require them to. And if those plans shut down, wind and solar, you're suddenly making up for lost ground, even though you still have that big lift of 80 to 85 percent. I think one overarching point to remember here is that all energy sources come with some baggage. And if we're going to have significantly higher uh, penetrations of wind and solar, up 80% to 100%, then you need to build a ton of power lines going from where that wind is, which is the Midwest, to places where there's not a lot of wind, like the Southeast. And a lot of people don't like power lines being constructed right in their backyards. And so I think there's a lot of concerns um, that will come about if this type of policy is pursued. Do the experts who maybe have given their lives to environmentalism and combating climate change, do they generally, I'll give you three choices. One, cheer this proposal because they read it literally. Two, cheer this proposal because something like they think it could start a conversation and maybe if it's a really big swing and we don't quite get there, it could still have good effects. Or three, have some different opinion on this resolution. I would say most fall into the middle category. I think a lot of people were caught by surprise with how much uh, momentum has gotten behind the Green New Deal. And I think it's, it's very easy to, to know why that is, because uh, AOC, as she's become known as, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York has thrown her full weight behind it. And she's a firebrand unto herself. And so, but I think there is a lot of uh, caution and wariness about this proposal in terms of whether or not it's going to divide the Democratic Party, let alone uh, provide a talking point for Republicans who are, as we reported this morning in Axios, uh, they want to have a fight about socialism. And there's been critics who say that this type of uh, significant government intervention into the economy is and would amount to socialism. Do you is the consensus that this Green New Deal would be the most pro-environmental, the best way to combat climate change, and that whatever middle road Nancy Pelosi plan would be less good at that? Or is the debate more that this plan is somehow so unrealistic and perhaps radioactive, to use a environmentalist term, it won't provide the most benefit in terms of combating climate change and some other act would actually be better? I think it's it's all of those things. I think it depends on, on who you ask and where they fall in the policy and political spectrum. I think there's a lot of Democrats who think there's a lot in this proposal that doesn't need to be there. If you go down to the very last page of this proposal, they end with some very big ideas such as universal health care, federal yes. jobs guarantees <laughs> yes. for anybody working in the transition. That Adequate to, housing for everyone. Yes, it's correct. all there. I mean, Everything they ever wanted is there. Right. And that's Beyonce why, on a stamp. It's there. <laughs> and that's why there's a lot of Republicans that are, you know, rubbing their fingers together, excited for this right. fight because they see this as a, a, a weapon. Um, when it comes to the 2020 campaign. And, it's you know, 
I'm not going to say whether or not this is a socialistic uh, policy, but Ocasio-Cortez has described herself as a as a socialist. And I do think this will become uh, not just a litmus test for the Democrats, but also uh, a big issue in, in the general election. What is the can you explain what the group uh, that Pelosi has? Is it an environmental working group that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez turned down a seat on? What is that? So that's the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Um, <laughs> it's it's a committee that does not have legislative or subpoena power. So a critic would say it's primarily a messaging uh, committee. The last time Democrats controlled the House, they had a similar committee. And so this committee is actually technically totally separate from the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the AOC crowd uh, initially wanted a select committee created just for the Green New Deal that would have had subpoena and legislative power. But that would have been just handing over everything to AOC. And, of course, Pelosi, who has been lukewarm uh, at best about the Green New Deal, is not ready to do that because she sees what I see and others see, which is a divided caucus and Republicans very wary and also eyeing it as a political weapon. Is the division, is the other part of the division, the non-Marky, who I should mention, and, and AOC, the non-adherents uh, and si- signers onto the Green New Deal, are they more moderate on environmentalism itself? Are they more skeptical of climate change? Do they not think it's as dire as, say, the Green New Deal people do? Or do you sense that they just have different tactics about how to get to a better place environmentally? I think that's a really great question because I think that most Democrats all agree that climate change is a very big problem. It's an urgent problem. Some, many say it's a crisis and that that requires very big action. So everybody's on board with that general consensus. I think some are concerned about the feasibility of the Green New Deal and things like uh, we discussed earlier, the 100% within 10 years, zero carbon goals. And so I think, you know, Senator Tom Carper, a a very progressive Democrat from Delaware, who's the top Democrat on the Environment Committee, he's supportive of the idea of a Green New Deal, but he thinks some of the uh, components are unrealistic. And so I think it's important to understand that everybody in the Democratic Party thinks that there's a big problem And that there's, you know, the science does require actually what a lot of what the Green New Deal says about emissions. But just because the science says that doesn't mean it's technically or politically or economically possible. Okay. And what's the, this is a very Axios question, you know, what does it mean? But what's the next step? What would she, what would, what should we look for in terms of uh, this resolution, this legislation? Well, uh, when I was at the, the press conference yesterday, there were a lot of questions about, you know, the details uh, of the proposal. And uh, Markey and AOC continue to say that, well, this is going to be hashed out in hearings. So I think now the Democratic Party is going to have to really decide for itself how it, what it wants to do with this. Uh, I anticipate there'll be hearings on it. I think that the ultimate goal is to have some sort of vote in the House. And again, that could be good or bad for Democrats uh, and good or bad for Republicans, depending on how you see it. I think we've already had uh, just this week two hearings in the House on climate change, the first time um, in years. And I think the next step is going to be uh, some internal fighting and disagreements among Democrats about the best way forward. Amy Harder covers climate change and energy for Axios. Thanks so much, Amy. You're welcome. Thank you. 
And now the spiel. A second accuser has come forward in Virginia. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax assaulted her, she says, when they were college students almost 20 years ago. As with the blackface scandals enveloping the other two statewide elected officials, many people have now called for Fairfax's resignation, including Meredith Watson, who is that woman who is his latest accuser. Perhaps Fairfax will go. Perhaps Ralph Northam will stay. As of this recording, there are many more calls of Northam's resignation than Fairfax's, though that can change. Sexual assault is a serious felony, punishable by up to 20 years in Massachusetts, where Fairfax is alleged to have sexually assaulted Vanessa Tyson in 2004, in North Carolina, where Fairfax went to college during his alleged 2000 assault, that crime is punishable by up to 25 years in prison. So it is a serious, serious crime, and it must be taken seriously, and it must be investigated. It must not be allowed to be dismissed. That said, I do not see how any responsible elected official can conclude, quote, I believe the women. I know this is a fashionable thing to say, perhaps in some circles, a progressive thing to say. Yes, a corrective thing to say. But what it is doing is prejudging an accusation without sufficient evidence. And a private citizen can come to any conclusion he or she wishes. And if an activist wants to say it as part of a policy to get to what they think is a better place, it might be a viable strategy. But it is the height of irresponsibility for the people whose job it is to place their hands on Bibles and swear to uphold our system to say, I believe the women. A newly elected member of Congress from the north of Virginia, Jennifer Wexton, has gone onto Twitter to say these words, quote, I believe Dr. Vanessa Tyson, I believe Meredith Watson, and I believe Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax must resign. The National Republican Congressional Committee had earlier targeted Wexton for not denouncing fair facts. They noted that Wexton criticized then-incumbent Republican Barbara Comstock for her failure to speak out against Brett Kavanaugh. On NBC Today, Julian Castro, presidential candidate, said this. Um, with Lieutenant Governor Fairfax, uh, I read Dr. Tyson's statement. Uh, I believe her. I believe her claim. Uh, he has denied that. Uh, my hope is that there's some process uh, to understand you what happened. A process. Uh, there may not be. Yeah. But what you see very clearly, in, and I think all of us feel in this country, is that for so many years, for generations, claims like this, whether they happened in the workplace or in the public sector, they were completely dismissed, just com ignored a lot of times. In fact, the woman would often be penalized she would be the one penalized for bringing it forward. Which is exactly why the framing should be, we cannot discount her accusation, or we need to hear her story, or we need to support this woman and do everything we can do to investigate the incident. I believe the woman is jumping to an unfounded conclusion. We must not disbelieve this woman. Now, that's the proper thing to say. Now, I understand that's a double negative, and it's not as punchy and it's not as clear as I believe her, but it is also the only ethical way to think about it. 
And what, do you really think this will never come back to hurt a Democrat? That no woman along the way will ever be disproved? Remember the woman who accused Brett Kavanaugh, who wasn't Christine Blasey Ford? The one who was represented by Michael Avenatti? She may be telling the truth, it just doesn't seem so. Knee-jerk belief, in her case, should not have been extended. And not just because she now seems wrong... It's easy to see that a knee-jerk conclusion is wrong when it's wrong, but it's also wrong if the accusation turns out to be accurate. Because it is no standard around which to organize a society or to demand justice. Absolutely, absolutely stand up for the accuser. And do not for a moment discount them or fall into the insidious traps that we have in the past when it came to thinking about what to do with women who come up and make an accusation or who are too fearful to do so. But listen to how Julian Castro ended his thought about believing women. They were completely dismissed, just ignored a lot of times. In fact, the woman would often be penalized. She would be the one penalized for bringing it forward. Thankfully, uh, over the last couple of years, we've moved completely in the other direction. No, it is not a good thing that we've gone completely in the other direction. The pendulum does not have to swing the entire way to be a corrective, because then it veers into territory that's unfair. And just think for a second, if you, Julian Castro, if you are ever accused by any woman of anything approximating sexual misconduct, you will there in that video have laid out the rationale to discount everything you say in your own defense. It is stupid. It is short-sighted. It is wrong. Not disbelieving isn't the same as believing. Rational judgment is not a weak version of an immediate strong conclusion. And an accusation is not proof that an action took place. We knew this as a country since we drew up the Constitution. And yes, we knew this For many, many years, and during those same years, we had really backwards ideas about rape and sexual assault and credibility and power. But that is the thing about principles. If they're the right principles, they don't need to change or bend to account for some unprincipled judgments or attitudes, even if those are in a related sphere. Maybe Justin Fairfax should go. Maybe Ralph Northam should too. That's politics, and I get it. In politics... There are competing principles at play, like what statement do you want to make? How do you want to position your party? Who do you want to be associated with your state? What's the right thing to do to deliver the most benefit to the most citizens? So there are certain principles that can argue for the removal of a politician, even if that politician actively denies an accusation. But as a principle, saying, I believe an accuser, just because of Her status as an accuser is not principled at all. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Here is a Daniel Schrader quote. I'm going to work from home. Is that okay? Here is a Mike Pesca quote. Pierre, did Daniel go home earlier today because he was sick or just shirking? That was a Mike Pesca quote. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast, which is a very strongly worded, aggressive, forward-thinking, non-binding resolution of a position. The gist, having an industrious producer who deserves to work from home once in a while, while at the same time being absolutely unable to resist mocking them in the credits, that is a complexifier for me. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.